When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. time Ether chapter 3 begins, the brother of Jared already knows some of the things that he needs to do to get these tight like unto a dish barges onto the promised land. He's been given the solution to the air problem and he's implemented it and he's realized that he's going to have to come up with a solution to the light problem and he's still working on that. The Lord has given him some parameters and some warnings that mountain waves are going to dash against any windows. You'll be a whale in the midst of the sea. You're going to have to come up with something different. Think outside the barge. This voyage will be extreme. So come to me in your extremities. That's exactly what he does. Chapter 3 thus begins. It came to pass that the brother of Jared, now the number of the vessels which had been prepared was eight. Remember, he was supposed to keep them small and light. We don't want them so cumbersome. We're not living in them. But that does mean we'll have to have multiple of them to bring everyone home. So he makes eight of them. But then he goes forth unto the mount, which they called the Mount Shalom because of its exceeding height. And he did molten out of a rock 16 small stones. See, two for each barge. They were white and clear, even as transparent glass. And he did carry them in his hands upon the top of the mount and cried again unto the Lord. Now, I love that the brother of Jared does everything within his power to make this possible. We know the story. He's soon to ask the Lord to touch these stones and make them glow. But couldn't he have done that with just regular rocks? And why climb a mountain for the conversation? Isn't God just as accessible from the beach? Well, of course. But again, I love that the brother of Jared is doing everything that he can do until he gets to a point where he realizes that there is nothing more that I can do at all. I've exhausted human strength, and now I am only relying on divine strength. But the fact he moltens them, that, that he makes them like transparent glass. I'm getting as close to light bulb as I possibly can. I want these things to shine. I will try to approximate my design as much as humanly possible, even though I know it falls short. And then he begins to pray. O oh Lord, thou hast said that we must be encompassed about by the floods. He's acknowledged that and accepted it. He's not fighting for having things easier or in his own way. Now behold, O Lord, and do not be angry with thy servant because of his weakness before thee. For we know that thou art holy and dwellest in the heavens and that we are unworthy before thee. Because of the fall, our natures have become evil continually. You see what he's recognizing and admitting to God? I know I'm nothing. I've done everything I possibly can, but it falls infinitely short of sufficient for what we need. I'm about to ask you for something that from the vantage point of omniscience and omnipotence is going to look like idiocy itself. Please don't be mad. This is the best I could come up with. Here are my loaves and fishes. And what are they among so many? Nothing. I know. Nothing, just like I am. But in your everything, can you multiply them? Can you feed the multitudes? Can you allow light to shine forth in darkness? Can you touch mere stones and make them shine? He says at the end of that verse, In spite of our fallen nature, nevertheless, O Lord, thou hast given us a commandment that we must call upon thee that from thee we may receive according to our desires. He understands his position. He understands the need for reliance, dependence upon God. No wonder there's this gulf that separates us. It's what reminds us that we need you. It's our hunger that makes us appreciate food. 
It's our recognition of the fall that makes us appreciate the atonement. No wonder you've given us a commandment to call upon you. You want to maintain a relationship with us. Verse 3, Behold, O Lord, thou hast smitten us because of our iniquity. We deserve it. Thou hast driven us forth, and for these many years we have been in the wilderness. Some of that was because of our own complacency. Nevertheless, thou hast been merciful unto us. You see his contrition, his repentance. O Lord, he pleads, look upon me in pity. Turn away thine anger from this thy people, and suffer not that they shall go forth across this raging deep in darkness. But behold these things which I have molten out of the rock. So again, there's this submission to divine will. If you want us to cross the raging deep in darkness, I'm okay with its rage. I'm okay with its depth. I'm even okay with its darkness. But if any of those things can give a little, I'm not asking you to change our circumstances. But please help us see what circumstances we're in and accept them. Help us see thy hand through them all. Even when we're swallowed in the depths, help us know that thou art there. If in verse 3 he expresses his nothingness, in verse 4 he describes God's abundance. I know, O Lord, that thou hast all power and can do whatsoever thou wilt for the benefit of man. Therefore, touch these stones, O Lord, with thy finger and prepare them that they may shine forth in darkness. And they shall shine forth unto us in the vessels which we have prepared, that we may have light while we shall cross the sea. Because I know who thou art, an all-powerful, loving Father, that does all things for the benefit of us, thy children. Because I know this about you, I have confidence and faith to ask this of you. His request was based in his understanding of the character of God. That's what Joseph Smith taught in the Lectures on Faith. It's not enough to know that God is. You need to know what God is like, that he is omnipotent, that he is omniscient, but that he's all loving and wants to provide these things for you. The brother of Jared understands all of that and believes it. And then I love the way he puts it in verse 5. Again, in his own just simple faith, his own humble humanity, he says, Behold, O Lord, thou canst do this. I love that. That is not a pep talk. He's not trying to pump up God, say, I know you can do it. I know you can. It was not that he was telling God anything that God didn't already know. It was that he was telling God, this is something that I know. I know that thou canst do this. He expands upon it next. We know that thou art able to show forth great power, which looks small unto the understanding of men. Interesting that he sees the smallness of his own feeble efforts. These stones, that's the best I could do. But he also recognizes that sometimes God is willing to work through such small and simple means that sometimes it looks small to us as well. Humility on man's part is matched by humility on God's. And in verse 6, the Lord rewards that humility and answers the brother of Jared's plea came to pass that when the brother of Jared had said these words, behold, the Lord stretched forth his hand and touched the stones one by one with his finger. I love that the Lord is willing to do it. It's almost like, wait, what do you got there? Oh, little, you, oh, you molted those that, and you made them transparent. That, great thinking. It's like, I, I don't know if I would have thought of that myself, but hey, I'm really proud of you. You came up with a solution. You thought outside the box. Well done. I love that he's willing to follow our lead on things. That's the best you could come up with. I'll make it happen. You provide loaves and fishes. I'll feed the multitude. You provide transparent stones. I'll make them shine. And as he touched them one by one, notice the end of verse 6, the veil was taken from off the eyes of the brother of Jared. This whole story is about seeing well, you're going to see things you never imagined. He saw the finger of the Lord. It was as the finger of a man, like unto flesh and blood. And the brother of Jared fell down before the Lord, for he was struck with fear. Now, he had some general idea of what God must be like, unless he was just speaking metaphorically back in verse 4, when he asked God to touch them with his finger. But now he actually sees that, wow, that, 
was more literal than I realized. The veil is removed. He falls down with fear. And in verse 7, when the Lord sees that he's fallen, he says to him, Arise, why hast thou fallen? Notice the first time he talked about the fall, back in verse 2, it was fall because he sensed how different he was from God. This time he falls because he recognizes how similar he is to him. That's such a beautiful contrary to prove as well. How different and yet how similar we are to heavenly parents, to our Savior Jesus Christ, that we are made in their image and that we are infinitely different in degree, but that in the most intimate ways we are not different in kind. I am a child of God is not just a children's song. It is a testimony of profound truth. And in some ways that recognition my evangelical friends are so concerned that that is supposed to bring us hubris and pride. You're trying to elevate yourself above the throne of God. No, no, no. That was Nimrod. That was Lucifer. For us, the recognition of our similarity to God does bring us to our knees in humility, in adoration, in anticipation, in desires for emulation. In verse 8, the brother of Jared answers the Lord's question. He said unto the Lord, I saw the finger of the Lord. I feared lest he should smite me, for I knew not that the Lord had flesh and blood. Again, I knew difference. I had not assumed similarity. Verse 9, the Lord said unto him, Because of thy faith thou hast seen that I shall take upon me flesh and blood. You see, it wasn't flesh and blood yet. This is still the premortal Christ. I shall take upon me flesh and blood. And now you know that because by your faith you've seen it. Never has man come before me with such exceeding faith as thou hast. For were it not so, ye could not have seen my finger. And then he asks this tantalizing question. Sawest thou more than this? Hinting at the fact that there is so much more to see. That encourages the brother of Jared. It reassures him. It emboldens him. And with that same faith, actually with more of it, he answers, Nay, Lord, show thyself unto me. Oh, the courage of the brother Jared to even say that. But you see how the Lord is almost coaxing him into this courage? It's your faith that allowed you to see that. Did you see anything else? Was that the limit of your faith? Or is it growing to the point that you are ready to see more? And he is. Show me. Show thyself to me. Verse 11, the Lord tests him one last time. Believest thou the words which I shall speak? Not just the words which I have spoken. It's not just faith in the past. It's faith in the future. Do you trust me enough? Do you know me well enough that you'll trust anything I have yet to say? That your testimony is based in the who and not just in the what? Do you trust me enough to accept anything I will tell you in the future? And he answers, Yea, Lord. And here's why. I know that thou speakest the truth, for thou art a God of truth and canst not lie. In other words, I believe in what you do, speak the truth, because I know who you are, a God of truth. Same thing back in verse 4. I know what you can do, touch the rocks, because I know who you are omnipotent. This is exactly the experience that Enos had as he was repenting and felt his guilt swept away. Why? As he said, because I knew that he could not lie. I knew the character of God and as a result I could trust his actions. I had faith in the what because I had faith in the who. In verse 13 that faith is rewarded infinitely. When he had said these words, behold, the Lord showed himself unto him and said, Because thou knowest these things. You see, it used to be faith. He mentions the brother of Jared's faith in verse 9. He asks him about the brother of Jared's belief in 11. But now he's talking about the brother of Jared's knowledge. From faith and belief to knowledge. You've seen, you've experienced, you know these things. And because you know them, Ye are redeemed from the fall. 
Therefore ye are brought back into my presence. Therefore I show myself unto you. Interesting how he's describing that. You're redeemed from the fall because you know these things about me. Wasn't knowledge to blame for the fall? Well, now it receives the credit for the redemption. They fell because they partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But as they come to know God, this is life eternal, John 17, 3, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. It's coming to know him that redeems us from the fall. It's one thing to know good and evil. It's another thing to know the solution to evil and the source of all good. It's knowledge that drives us out of the innocence and naivete of Eden. But it is divine knowledge that lifts us out of that valley east of Eden and onto the elevation of the atonement. Often I work with people who are self-proclaimed intellectuals that have felt that I know too much to, to have a testimony of the gospel. It is their knowledge, eating that fruit from that tree, that brought them out of innocent Eden. And I just try to reassure them. Then keep knowing and keep thinking and hold on to that intellect, but add to it spirit. Prove those contraries of head and heart. Keep on learning. Keep on coming to know God. And it's not a return trip to Eden. It's to something far beyond a promised garden, Gethsemane, that far surpasses the Garden of Eden where this all began. It's that divine knowledge that brings redemption, and it's that redemption that brings us back into God's presence. I do want to stop a second before we go on and look at two words in verse 13. He didn't just say, because thou knowest ye are redeemed from the fall. It wasn't just general or generic knowledge. He's more specific here and says, because thou knowest these things, ye are redeemed from the fall. Makes me wonder, what was he referring to by these things? What specific truths had the brother of Jared come to understand that brought redemption to him? Well, it all began with the sight of a finger, but a spiritual finger that would someday have flesh and blood. He was seen a condescending Christ, one who was willing to come down, a Jared that was the brother of this brother of Jared. He was learning incarnation and condescension. He was learning the character of Christ, omniscience and omnipotence and truthfulness and honesty because he was coming to know who the Savior was. That would redeem him from the fall. That the Word of God was willing to be made flesh, to wrap our injured flesh around him, as a beautiful song says, to come to know us perfectly so that we might come to know him and trust in him. No matter what he says, no matter what he puts us through, no matter how deep the depths or how high the mountain waves, we would know that he would always bring us up again because he had descended below all things. Those seem to be these things that the brother of Jared had come to intimately know. The Lord continues this self-disclosure in verse 14. Behold, I am he who was prepared from the foundation of the world to redeem my people. Don't be angry that I am sending you to the depths of the sea to bring you back up out of them. Remember, I told you at the end of chapter 2, I've prepared you against all of those things. Just like the Father prepared me, I was going to descend to the depths of mortality itself, to descend below all things. Art thou greater than me? But just as I prepared you, the Father has prepared me from before the foundation of the world to redeem my people. And that redemption would require condescension. It would require a mortal finger and a mortal body to go with it. Mortal fingers to lay on weak and wearied heads. Mortal fingers to touch the Nephite apostles and promise them life. Mortal fingers to break bread and pour wine and wash feet a mortal body to suffer and to bleed from every pore, to be nailed to a cross, to have a body to abandon and then to take back. They would take all of that 
Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. Remember, we talked about that in Mosiah chapter 15. I have both a father side and a son side. I think you only envisioned my father side and it scared you. But I have a son side that should reassure you. In the ways that you are not yet like me, I am the father. And in the ways that I will yet become like you, I am the son. In Jesus, the entire spectrum is covered. He answers the ends of the law descends beneath all things that he may ascend above all things and better yet, take us with him. No wonder he reassures him, in me shall all mankind have life and that eternally. Even they who shall believe on my name, they shall become my sons and my daughters. You see, I descend, I Jared, I come down so that I can have brothers and sisters, the brother of Jared. But as I ascend and reclaim that father's side, you become my sons and my daughters. That's what King Benjamin taught in Mosiah 7. Children of the covenant. He descends as a son. He ascends as a father. He approaches us and invites us to be brothers and sisters. We accept him and end up his daughters and sons. Verse 15, never have I showed myself unto man whom I have created. At least not in this way. Adam had seen him, Enoch had seen him, but the brother of Jared was the first to see him in this way, in this form. And why was he first? Because never had any man believed in Christ as he had. Seest thou that ye are created after mine own image? Yea, even all men were created in the beginning after mine own image. And you're seeing that. Verse 16, behold, this body which ye now behold is the body of my spirit. And man have I created after the body of my spirit. And even as I appear unto thee to be in the spirit, will I appear unto my people in the flesh. Moroni takes that opportunity to interrupt the narrative just briefly to be able to expand upon that. I, Moroni, said I couldn't make a full account, and I won't. It sufficeth me to say that Jesus showed himself unto this man in the spirit, even after the manner and in the likeness of the same body, even as he showed himself unto the Nephites. So now from his later perspective, he ministered unto him, even as he ministered unto the Nephites, all this that this man might know that he was God because of the many great works which the Lord had shown unto him. And then this beautiful takeaway in verse 19, and because of the knowledge of this man, he could not be kept from beholding within the veil. He saw the finger of Jesus, which when he saw, he fell with fear, for he knew that it was the finger of the Lord. And he had faith no longer, for he knew nothing doubting. Wherefore, having this perfect knowledge of God, he could not be kept from within the veil. Therefore, he saw Jesus and he did minister unto him. That's Moroni's explanation of the experience the brother of Jared had just had and what the Lord said to him during it. And I love what Moroni is doing to distinguish between knowledge and faith, between knowing and believing. Remember, the Lord had walked him through that before. Faith in 9, belief in 11, knowledge in 13. Same evolution in Moroni's take. He started with faith, but now he knew. And when knowledge came, faith receded. Faith had served its purpose. Faith preceded the miracle. He received no witness until after the trial of his faith. But once his faith was proven, it passed the test. It was no longer necessary. In fact, it was no longer possible in that regard. He knew. We've seen this repeatedly through the Book of Mormon. When the signs of Christ's birth came in such an obvious way that the people, even the disbelievers, now knew their chance for faith was now over. See how he says it at the end of 19. They had faith no longer for he knew nothing doubting. You can't doubt anymore because you know. You can't have faith anymore because you know. It lets you know that faith and doubt are in many ways coexistent in terms of which are you choosing. Both of the options lay before you. I have the option to choose faith. It's an attitude, not just a proposition. Or I have the option to choose doubt, which is an attitude, not just a proposition. 
in the absence of perfect knowledge, I have an opportunity to choose between faith or doubt. Eventually, that choice will no longer be mine to make. I will know. It's that knowledge that erases the veil. It's that knowledge that obviates it, makes it no longer necessary. I already know what's on the other side. You can open it. It's amazing to ponder that phrase in verse 20. Perfect knowledge, because of it, he could not be kept from within the veil. You already know what's on the other side. So enter. Now the rest of us have not yet had that experience. We don't know with such perfect knowledge what's on the other side of the veil to the point that the veil is no longer necessary. And it needs to be that way for a time. It needs to be that way to give us the chance to exercise faith, to build those spiritual muscles. And so as not to short-circuit that, some things are meant to be withheld for a time. We saw that back in Mormon, right? Don't write all these things. I'm going to try their faith. Verse 21 suggests something similar. It came to pass that the Lord said unto the brother of Jared, Behold, thou shalt not suffer these things which ye have seen and heard to go forth unto the world, until the time cometh that I shall glorify my name in the flesh. Wherefore ye shall treasure up the things which ye have seen and heard, and show it to no man. So don't show it unto the world until it's time. 22, Behold, when ye shall come unto me, ye shall write them, and shall seal them up, that no one can interpret them. For ye shall write them in a language that they cannot be read. That's what's going to frustrate Limhi, right? That he can't understand these things. But, at the same time, 23 and 24, These two stones will I give unto thee, and ye shall seal them up also with the things which ye shall write. For behold, the language which ye shall write I have confounded. Wherefore I will cause in my own due time that these stones shall magnify to the eyes of men these things which ye shall write. And that's exactly what King Mosiah used to interpret these things. See how it's all coming together now? It's actually fascinating that in this chapter that talks about Jesus touching stones to bring forth light. It's like, well, 16 is a good number. Two per boat is awesome. But while we're at it, can I give you two extra ones of my own? They too will shine forth in darkness. They too will allow you to see. It will make you a seer so that you can see things that could not otherwise be known. No wonder these things would be translated, both anciently and in the 19th century by Joseph Smith. Through the gift, here I'm giving them unto thee, through the gift and power of God. This is exactly what Moroni himself was grappling with at the end of Mormon chapter 9. I'm writing in Reformed Egyptian. We tweaked Egyptian, we tweaked the Hebrew. How's anybody going to understand these things? Well, I'm just going to trust God. It will not be a learned scholarly translation. That one will be impossible. I'm going to make your voyage just hard enough that you know you can't do it on your own. I'm going to make your language impossible to read or understand by merely mortal means. They're going to have to come to me. Go figure. Since the book is meant to bring them to me in the first place. Verse 25, this incredible epiphany, expands even beyond the experience that the brother of Jared is having. When the Lord had said these words, he showed unto the brother of Jared all the inhabitants of the earth, which had been, and also all that would be, and he withheld them not from his sight, even unto the ends of the earth. This is like the experience that Moses had in Moses 1. Seeing all things, all people, every particle of the earth. What I love about the parallel between this experience with the brother of Jared Moses' experience in Moses 1 and Enoch's experience in Moses 7 is it provides a glimpse into what I consider one of the most beautiful of contraries to prove, that of infinite and intimate when it comes to our Father in heaven and our Savior Jesus Christ. You see, the beauty of proving contraries is that both sides are true, even though they seem to contradict each other. Whenever you have seemingly opposite goods and you ask, which one is it? If the answer is yes, then there's a contrary being proven. And which is God? Is God the infinite or is God the intimate? Yes. The atonement of Christ, was it infinite or was it intimate? Yes. Here's this father side, son side that we're grappling with in the incarnation of Christ. Here's the brother of Jared seeing this all-powerful, all-knowing deity, and then seeing a finger that would someday take flesh and blood. 
Or here's Moses being shown worlds without number, but also being called by name and being told that he is God's son. Or Enoch watching a God weep and not being able to make sense of that because of the infinite scope of divine creation. Who are we, Father? We are nothing. Flick this earth off into oblivion and it takes nothing away from your omnipotence and omniscience. And then the Lord flips it on Enoch's head and says to him, but don't you understand? It's not about me. It's about you. You on this earth that have not chosen me and cannot come to love one another. How can I not weep about that? You see what happened with Enoch? He had seen the infinite side of God and was then introduced to the intimate side of God. And it blew him away. I remember as a little boy, Cub Scout days, my dad was the plant manager for a Frito-Lay plant. Believe me, we sang, I'm so glad when daddy comes home every time. Because it was like, is he bringing Doritos tonight or Cheetos or Tostitos or what? We would go to the plant. Again, I was a Cub Scout. And often on these little Cub Scout outings, we would go to the plant and just eat chips off the conveyor belts. It was awesome. And it was this massive factory. And I remember at times going up to my dad's office and just being blown away that dad ran the plant. And as a little kid, I was in awe of that. I just thought, I can't believe how much my dad has going on at work to the point that it would be even surprising to think that he'd be willing to come home and play catch with me in the front yard. There was such a mix there of the infinite and the intimate in that relationship that has helped me understand a little bit better the relationship I have with Heavenly Father, that he has a lot more going on than we often realize a universe to run, worlds without number. And yet in the midst of that infinite scope, he is willing to intimately connect with you and me, that he'll answer your prayers and heal your heart. I think sometimes we overemphasize Christ's divinity at the expense of his humanity, and other times we overemphasize his humanity at the expense of his divinity. Contraries are hard to prove. Balance is hard to strike. We sometimes do the same with our Father in heaven as well, thinking him too infinite to really think he would condescend to hear our prayers, or thinking him too intimate to be shocked that he does. Try as hard as you can to strike that balance. My oldest daughter is an incredible artist and painted what I consider a masterpiece, which she gave to me. That is the cosmos itself wrapping its fingers around the hand of a child. It so beautifully depicts the infinite and the intimate side of a loving Father in heaven, the Almighty God. And as the brother of Jared is learning here, a father and son who will someday take upon flesh, Jesus Christ. In this infinite expansion of that intimate experience, the brother of Jared, who had come to see the Lord's finger, is now seeing all that the finger of God had created. The infinite and the intimate are combined here in profound ways. Verse 26 then continues, For he had said unto him in times before, that if he would believe in him, that he could show unto him all things, it should be shown unto him. Therefore the Lord could not withhold anything from him. For he knew, he knew that the Lord could show him all things. Notice it doesn't say that he knew everything. Simply that he knew that God did and knew that God could show it unto him. This is absolute assurance of the third shelf that third part of the ninth article of faith, all that God has yet to reveal. I know that there are revelations yet to come. And I know God will reveal them to me because I know he is a revealer of truth. Know that well enough and nothing can be withheld you permanently. The chapter then ends with the Lord saying to the brother of Jared, write these things, all that you've seen, seal them up because others don't yet have the faith or the knowledge to see them for themselves. And I will show them in mine own due time unto the children of men. 
and as if to provide evidence that it was meant to be revealed at some point. In verse 28, the Lord also commanded him to seal up the two stones which he had received and show them not until the Lord should show them unto the children of men. Record and interpreters. Revelation and the means to access it. He wants us to understand these things. There is a veil, but there is also one so eager to part it. Now, as if to emphasize that point, Moroni is going to take a two-chapter break from the story to reassure us modern readers it's going to come someday. This is the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, after all. Moroni is going to talk about that more when we get to Ether chapter 12. I love that chapter, especially what Moroni says about the book that he is compiling and sealing because we're not yet ready to receive it. Chapter 4, verse 1, The Lord commanded the brother of Jared to go down out of the mount from the presence of the Lord and to write the things which he had seen. And it's here that Moroni is going to go on this beautiful tangent to talk about this record. He says, They were forbidden to come unto the children of men until after he should be lifted up upon the cross. For this cause did King Mosiah keep them, that they should not come unto the world until after Christ should show himself unto his people. Again, Moroni is thinking, that pays to be an A.D. saint. I get to see this. Verse 2, after Christ truly had shown himself unto his people, he commanded that they should be made manifest. I wonder if that is an unspoken part of 4th Nephi. Perhaps another reason that they were able to live in peace for that 200 years. Because they had seen the big picture. They had grappled with the infinite and intimate that the brother of Jared had put into print. Verse 3, however, what happens after the aftermath? After that, they have all dwindled in unbelief. We're now at the end of 4th Nephi and on into Mormon. And there is none save it be the Lamanites, and they have rejected the gospel of Christ. Therefore, I am commanded that I should hide them up again in the earth. Hiding them up again in the earth suggests that they were hidden up in the earth at some point. See, that's part of the mystery. And all, even scholars are trying to grapple with provenance of the record we know from Limhi and so on. But even how Limhi's people found it in, in the land desolation, that's tricky to understand. Uh, how Mosiah the second and perhaps the first in some ways. Where it, again, there's some confusion as to, is this the same set both times? How was it given? Where did it get passed through? Fascinating questions to consider. But was there a sense of it being buried at some point by an ether? Just like they would be buried once again by Moroni. There's some fascinating parallels between ether and Moroni on the tail ends of their civilizations. Just like there's some fascinating parallels between Jared and his brother and Lehi and his family on the front end of these two civilizations. It's beautifully complex and wonderfully rich. But back to Moroni's account, verse 4, Behold, I have written upon these plates the very things which the brother of Jared saw. And there never were greater things made manifest than those which were made manifest unto the brother of Jared. Again, he will speak highly of them again in two weeks. Verse 5, Wherefore the Lord hath commanded me to write them, and I have written them. And he commanded me that I should seal them up, and he also hath commanded that I should seal up the interpretation thereof. Wherefore, I have sealed up the interpreters according to the commandment of the Lord. So interesting. It has to exist, but not yet available. They need to be able to read it, but not quite yet. Seal the writing. Seal up the interpreters. Verse 6, the Lord said unto me. So now this is not just the Lord teaching these things originally to the brother of Jared, but the Lord speaking to Moroni about what he's supposed to do with them. He says to him, They shall not go forth unto the Gentiles until the day that they shall repent of their iniquity and become clean before the Lord. Don't forget that the Lord had chastened the brother of Jared for three hours for the sin that he had committed in not calling upon the name of the Lord, not progressing on his journey. And it was only after that repentance and becoming clean that he was able to receive them in the first place. Same is true of us in our case. We'll never get to see these things until our eye is as single to the glory of God as the brother of Jared's was, until we are as clean as he became. Verse 7, In that day that they shall exercise faith in me, saith the Lord, even as the brother of Jared did, that they may become sanctified in me, even as the brother of Jared was. Remember, he was redeemed from the fall because of what he knew. Then will I manifest unto them the things which the brother of Jared saw. 
even to the unfolding unto them all my revelations, saith Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of the heavens and of the earth and all things that in them are. Verse 7 has so many elements that we saw in chapter 3 about the brother of Jared's experience. It's as if the Lord is asking us and inviting us to have a similar experience ourselves. If he is the Jared, the descender, the condescending Christ, then we have to be that brother of Jared that exercises similar faith and achieves similar worthiness and is sanctified in similar ways through similar knowledge. And if that's the case, then we will see all that he saw. Those revelations, all of them, will be unfolded unto us. What a promise. And it all comes from the same Jesus Christ that the brother of Jared came to know. The same Son of God, the same Father of the heavens and the earth. Those were the same titles used in that earlier description. Verse 8, on the other hand, He that will contend against the word of the Lord, let him be accursed. He that shall deny these things, let him be accursed. For unto them will I show no greater things, saith Jesus Christ. For I am he who speaketh. We keep seeing that in the Book of Mormon too. Alma 12, a soft heart receives more until they know all. A hardened heart receives less until they know nothing. 2 Nephi 28.30, line upon line, precept upon precept. Be open to more, you'll receive it. Be closed to more and you'll lose what you have. Beware of contending or denying the truths of God. Because verse 9, if at God's command the heavens can be opened and shut, the same is true of Revelation. If at his word the earth shakes, if by his command the inhabitants thereof pass away, even so by fire, then the same is true for us. If he wakes up the world by shaking it, if he puts them back to sleep as it's cleansed by fire, are we awake to the opportunity to hear and learn the revelations of God? Verse 10, he that believeth not my words, believeth not my disciples. So this is one of those, whether by mine own voice or the voice of my servants, it is the same. And then he says, if it so be that I do not speak, whether me directly to the brother of Jared, or what the brother of Jared wrote down, or what, the, what Moroni is writing here, or what the Joseph Smith is translating later. If you don't believe any of that, that's fine. Be my guest. Judge ye, he says, but be aware that ye shall know that it is I that speaketh at the last day. It's amazing that the Lord is saying that here. If you don't think these are my words, that's your prerogative. But someday you will know. And your knowing then will end your opportunity of believing now. Nephi said something similar. Moroni will say something similar himself very shortly. You don't have to believe me. You can judge for yourself. But someday you will know. Nephi says, someday you'll see me and know that I was saying the truth. Hear Jesus, someday you'll know that it was I that was speaking. Very shortly, Moroni will say, and someday you'll see me too. So often we see three witnesses come together. We'll see that again in chapter 5. But we saw originally in the Book of Mormon those three witnesses, Nephi, Jacob, Isaiah, witnesses of the gathering of Israel in Third Nephi, Isaiah, Nephi, Jesus, witnesses of the Book of Mormon, Nephi, Moroni, Jesus, and like I said very shortly in Ether 5, witnesses of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, David Whitmer. Now, verse 8, 9, and 10 were a brief interruption showing the negative side of things. Let's quickly get back to the positive. We saw the positive in 7. Let's return to the positive in 11. But he that believeth these things which I have spoken, those with the faith like the brother of Jared, him will I visit with the manifestations of my spirit, and he shall know and bear record. See the order there? You believe these things. There's your faith. You're visited with the manifestations of my spirit. There's confirming witness. You know, and then you bear record. That was the same order for the three witnesses in Joseph Smith's day. And then the Lord says this at the end of 11. For because of my spirit, he shall know that these things are true. And here's why. Here's the criteria for establishing its truth. For it persuadeth men to do good. What effect does the Book of Mormon have in people's lives? By their fruits ye shall know them. 
Verse 12, he expands upon that. Whatsoever thing persuadeth men to do good is of me. For good cometh of none, save it be of me. I love that phrase. When wonderful, well-meaning people pay me compliments of, oh, that was a really good lesson. Anytime that word comes, this verse pops into my head. I think, oh, well, if it was good, then I know who deserves the credit, and I'll try to pass it along to him. It's kind of a bummer that the only things I'm authorized to acknowledge as my own are the things I wouldn't want to claim. If it's not that good, then yeah, that was me. If it was any good, then good cometh of none, save it be of God. And to him be the glory. What he says next, I am the same that leadeth men to do all good. So anything that does the same comes from me. He that will not believe my words will not believe me that I am. And he that will not believe me will not believe the Father who sent me. For behold, I am the Father, I am the light and the life and the truth of the world. Like father, like son here. And in a similar way, like son, like servant. Remember we see that in the oath and covenant of the priesthood? If you accept the servants, you accept the son. If you accept the son, you accept the father. If you accept the father, you accept all that the father has. That's what he wants to give you. But are we willing to see him in all the lesser links of the chain? Moroni then shifts his attention to his readers again. I hope we're getting used to that, right? There's no one else for him to speak to directly but us. Mormon's been doing that throughout the Book of Mormon with all his thus we sees. Moroni's been doing that, speaking to us as if we were present, even when we're not. Well, here's the Lord doing that. The Lord speaking through Moroni to each of us, staring into the camera. Verse 13, first to the Gentiles. And what's the Lord's invitation to them? Come unto me, O ye Gentiles. I will show unto you the greater things, the knowledge which is hid up because of unbelief. Believe what you've been given, and you'll be given more. Believe the Bible. It will prepare you to believe the Book of Mormon. Believe the Book of Mormon. It will prepare you to believe the record of the lost tribes. It will prepare you to believe in all the revelations yet to come. Verse 14, the Lord then shifts his attention to the house of Israel but has the same invitation for them as he had to the Gentiles. Come unto me, O ye house of Israel, and it shall be made manifest unto you how great things the Father hath laid up for you from the foundation of the world, and it hath not come unto you because of unbelief. Remember, belief and faith leads to knowledge. Well, unbelief leads to ignorance. So just come. Believe in me enough to come unto me. I'll take it from there. And then this beautiful promise in verse 15. Behold, when ye shall rend that veil of unbelief, which doth cause you to remain in your awful state of wickedness and hardness of heart and blindness of mind, then shall the great and marvelous things which have been hid up from the foundation of the world from you, yea, when ye shall call upon the Father in my name, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, then shall ye know that the Father hath remembered the covenant which he made unto your fathers, O house of Israel. Such a powerful verse. To rend the veil. To tear it. To rip it apart because you want to enter. That's the phrase in the book of Hebrews. To come boldly to the throne of grace. The throne of grace is the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, and it's in the Holy of Holies. What's separating you from it? A veil. And the Lord is saying, come boldly, rend the veil of unbelief. Remember, it was the brother of Jared's faith that could not keep him from without. He was able to force his way in because he knew he had that much belief, that much faith, that much confidence in Christ. Do we? Can we rip it? Can we rend the veil of our unbelief? That's what's keeping us from seeing these beautiful things. Because I don't believe there's anything on the other side. Then no wonder it's closed to me. It's my unbelief I need to rip apart. Notice, by the way, that in verse 15, it is unbelief that leads to wickedness. Not lack of knowledge, but lack of faith. So often people come and are wrestling with questions about church history or doctrine or whatever. People that are struggling or losing their faith. And it's like, I just, I need to know these things. It needs to be a head up conversation. I want you to prove everything empirically. I want this to be purely rational. 
as, and as much as I love rational discussions, as much as I, I am a thinker myself, it's not your lack of knowledge that's causing the problem. It's your lack of faith. It's not a veil of ignorance. It's a veil of unbelief. It's not the head problems that are causing this. It's the heart problems that are. Because it's faith and not knowledge that softens the heart and enlightens the mind. It's faith and not knowledge that propels us to call upon the Father in his name. It's faith, not just knowledge that brings a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Satan has perfect knowledge. The devils believe and tremble, James says. But there's no faith there. Remember, there was perfect knowledge after the signs of Christ's birth. But there were still some who lacked faith because they'd never developed it. And it was that lack of faith that caused in them an awful state of wickedness and hardness and blindness. Please take advantage of your days of doubt to fill them with faith. It's our unbelief, not our ignorance, that is causing the veil. And it's our unbelief, not our ignorance, that needs to be rent in twain. And once we do, look at verse 16. Talk about preview of coming attractions. Then shall my revelations, which I have caused to be written by my servant John, be unfolded in the eyes of all the people. You want to understand the book of Revelation? Then rend the veil of unbelief. That verse ends, remember when ye see these things, the Book of Mormon, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, when you see it, ye shall know that the time is at hand, that they shall be made manifest in very deed. So it's one thing for the revelation of John to be manifest in word. That's been there for the last 2,000 years. But to be manifest in very deed, well, that's when you're living through those things. The end of the sixth seal and into the seventh. And when the Book of Mormon comes forth, there's some powerful connections between the Book of Mormon and the Apocalypse, the Book of Revelation. Nephi, you see that in his visions. They were apocalyptic visions and they tie in so perfectly with John to the point that the Lord says to Nephi, okay, that's enough. You've written up to this point. John's got it from there. That Nephi and John were successive runners in the relay race? Hello. And here Moroni seeing the similar things where it's, whoa, when the book comes forth, remember we saw that back in 3rd Nephi, what's the sign of the gathering of Israel? The coming forth of the book of Mormon. That shows that it's go time. The work of the Father has already commenced. And that's the kind of stuff that's taking place in the last days. That's book of Revelation kind of material. So when the book of Mormon comes forth, it's not just that the Father's work is commencing, it's that we're seeing the very deeds described in the book of Revelation take place end of the sixth seal, beginning of the seventh. Verse 17, Therefore, when ye shall receive this record, it's go time, ye may know that the work of the Father has commenced upon all the face of the land. And therefore, see these therefores building up? The coming forth of the Book of Mormon is the sign that it's happening. Therefore, when you see it, know that it's happening. And therefore, verse 18, now that you know that it's go time and that it's happening, what are we supposed to do? You guessed it. Repent. Repent all ye ends of the earth. Come unto me. Believe in my gospel. Be baptized in my name. For he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned, and signs shall follow them that believe in my name. You see in the doctrine of Christ spelled out as usual, the fourth article of faith which keeps popping up Come unto me and believe in my name. There's your faith. Repent to all ye ends of the earth. Be baptized. Make and keep covenants. So the Spirit can carry you through this journey. And then in 19, keep it up. Endure to the end. Blessed is he that is found faithful unto my name at the last day. That's endurance. For he shall be lifted up to dwell in the kingdom prepared for him from the foundation of the world. And behold, it is I that hath spoken it. Amen. What a message from the Lord. As conveyed through the prophet Moroni, but I hope you see the divine fingerprints, even if it happens to be in Moroni's handwriting. This is the Lord speaking all through the end of this chapter. And then Moroni provides a little bit of administrative direction. So interesting that right here, he's about to get back to the story. 
Chapter 4 was a big interruption from the Lord speaking to all of us, realizing you, my little brothers, you brothers of Jared, you need to have similar experiences, so prepare for them. And in chapter 6, Moroni is going to get back to the story, and the brother of Jared is going to start putting the, the shining stones into the barges and start this journey. It's like, oh yeah, that is what we were talking about, isn't it? Easy to get lost in the brother of Jared's epiphany and the Lord's invitation to all of us. But before he connects the dots, before he gets back to the story, Moroni is going to insert a very short six-verse chapter, which is directed to Joseph Smith. Again, Moroni doesn't have anybody to talk to, so he's putting all his eggs in the restorations basket. And to speak like Jesus did to all of us Latter-day readers, here's Moroni speaking to the Latter-day Revealer. And now I, Moroni, have written the words which were commanded me according to my memory. And I have told you the things which I have sealed up. This is like scriptorian to scriptorian. Joseph, you're going to have this book. Some of it I have sealed up. That's the stuff you're not supposed to translate until the Lord says it's time. Until a critical mass of readers has rent the veil of unbelief. I keep waiting for that day. I always joke with my institute students, like maybe next semester we'll add a new course called the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. I can hardly wait to teach that one. But I'm telling you the things which I've sealed up. Therefore, touch them not in order that ye may translate. For that thing is forbidden you, except by and by it shall be wisdom in God. So that's your first piece of instruction, future prophet, seer, and revelator. Don't translate the sealed portion. Verse 2, here's some good news though. Behold, ye may be privileged, and it is a privilege, that ye may show the plates unto those who shall assist to bring forth this work. And unto three shall they be shown by the power of God. Wherefore, they shall know of a surety that these things are true. Now you see Oliver and David and Martin. And as I said before, it was a privilege for Joseph Smith to be able to share this book, to show the plates unto them. After the three witnesses had their own manifestation, were able to see these plates themselves, Joseph came home feeling a lot taller than before. A huge weight had lifted, and he just he expressed it to his family. I'm not alone in this anymore. That they will bear witness right alongside me. The law of witnesses, by the mouth of two or three or more shall every word be established, is such a sharing of the weight of responsibility among those witnesses. And Joseph felt it keenly. It was a privilege, a gift, a blessing to him. Verse 4 establishes that principle. In the mouth of three witnesses shall these things be established. And the testimony of three and this work in the which shall be shown forth the power of God and also his word, of which the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost bear record, all this shall stand as a testimony against the world at the last day. What do we see when we open the Book of Mormon? We see the testimony of the three, and then we see this work. And as we study this work, the power of God starts shining through. The Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost bear record of these truths to our heart. And then we can stand as a witness with it instead of it standing as a witness against us. Verse 5, If it so be that they repent and come unto the Father in the name of Jesus, which is what this book is meant to accomplish. It's what it's been inviting us to do from the very beginning. If we heed that invitation, then we shall be received into the kingdom of God. And then Moroni adds his witness to the one we saw from Jesus one chapter ago and the one that we saw from Nephi a thousand years ago. And now, if I have no authority for these things, judge ye. For ye shall know that I have authority when ye shall see me and we shall stand before God at the last day. Amen. You see how serious Moroni is about his witness as well as his responsibility? Someday I'll meet Nephi. I'm grateful it will feel more like a reunion than a first acquaintance. Someday I will meet Moroni as he bears testimony once again at the judgment. Those were the words of God that he commanded me to write. And I'll say, I already know. I felt his voice through your words, through a lifetime of studying them. 
Thank you for bearing witness of them, Moroni. Thank you for bearing witness of them, Nephi. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing witness of them to my heart. There is no need for them to testify against me because I can testify of them along with the three of you. I know my witness is a weak one compared to yours. But for me, it's the one that matters most, that I can bear witness. Judge ye for yourselves, whether you'll accept it or not. But I know that I will be held responsible for the witness that I have and the witness I am willing to bear of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon for the goodness that it brings out of me, a goodness that I testify can only come from Christ.